I'm sure there are many other stories if you want to ask him about what else took place. Well, Lord God, we thank you for providing for Tom and Lynn to be able to visit and encourage um, our missionaries, Doug and Nancy, Sean and Kim, and, and the whole team, as well as just the national partners that uh, the team has been working with for decades. We thank you for the work of the gospel that is going forth there. Just like it says in the scriptures, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And we, as we see these pictures and hear some of the stories, we know that this is coming true in Zimbabwe, that your word is going forth very powerfully and affecting the lives, bringing people to a true salvation in Jesus Christ and transforming their lives and their families and their livelihoods. We thank you for the ministry that's been able to be accomplished through Chatterbox and for putting that whole ministry project on so many men and women's hearts to put together to provide theological and ministry resources in places where it's just not available. But now it is. And it strengthens your church. It brings health to your church. It causes um, the truth of the word to go forth. It causes ministry to be effective. We just continue to ask that you would bless that project and take the box to the places that it needs to go to encourage the pastors and leaders that need it. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ, it also says in the scriptures. And we do pray for our friends, our brothers and sisters, for Doug and Nancy and Sean and Kim especially, that you would continue to direct their hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Continue to encourage them by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we pray that you continue to bless your church as it grows in all these new churches in the country of Zimbabwe. Amen. Well, today we're continuing in our study in the Gospel according to Luke, and so you can see the passage is printed for you uh, in your worship folder. But you know, as Christians, we, we confess and we know that Jesus Christ is coming back. And He's coming back in great glory, and we know that in the meantime, we're supposed to be serving Him. Um, but sometimes this whole image, this whole understanding of Jesus coming back in glory can seem so distant, so far away, so unimaginable or ethereal maybe, that it can lose its impact on us. And we need to be re-inspired, if you will, what it is to, to work to bring Him glory before He returns and reigns on this earth. And so we often lose, we often become faint in our service to Christ and we need some encouragement frequently. We can get caught up in our own lives and living them and we need to be refocused on what's really important and where we're supposed to be serving. And sometimes we can even just forget about the most basic thing, that God's grace has worked salvation in our own lives. And we need to be reminded that God then is now in Christ, pleased with us, and desires to accomplish much through us. Well, in our scripture passage today, we're going to get what we need from Jesus Christ to be more faithful and joyful followers of His. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. We'll read the storyline, the story as we go along. But we know that in the Gospel of Luke, as we're reading through the whole story, that pretty soon we're going to get to the heart of the matter, and our Lord Jesus Christ is going to soon die on a cross, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven. And we will be waiting for Him to return and reign upon the earth. And so Luke, in this final parable, before we begin that final story, reminds us to faithfully serve our Lord Jesus, our coming King, and anticipate a generous reward when He returns. 
And so, he tells us this parable, this story. In verses 11 to 14, we learn that the Lord Jesus has entrusted resources to his followers. In verses 15 to 23, that the Lord Jesus will reward the faithfulness of his servants. And in verses 24 to 27, that the Lord Jesus will judge all of those who are opposed to his rule. Now, this is the final episode, as I just briefly mentioned. In Luke's travelogue, Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem, as you remember from chapter 9, you know, and here we are in chapter 19, and he's still not there yet. So it's a very long travel log that we have in Luke's gospel, and he finally is going to make it to Jerusalem. And so today, we're looking at the parable of the ten minas. It's also known as the parable of faithfulness, or the parable of good stewardship, whatever you want to call it. There's a similar parable, some of you may know, in Matthew 25, called the parable of the talents. That was delivered a little bit later, uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Jerusalem. And it has the same general concept in mind, but they're very different in their details. And Jesus will often tell similar parables on different occasions to make different points. And so today we're looking at this one. Uh, Luke records it, that it was given in the city of Jericho. And so let's take a look at this parable. If we're supposed to be faithfully serving We have to realize he's entrusted resources to us. And so it begins in verse 11 with a nice introduction. It says, And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. But if you remember what happened immediately before in the story, it's the famous story of Zacchaeus being saved. This wealthy, rich, corrupt tax collector who meets Jesus and gets his life completely turned upside down and converted. And so the people have been following. This crowd has been following Jesus. They've seen this as they've observed it. And they're assuming that pretty soon, if not immediately, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, well, that's when the kingdom's going to come in its fullness. I mean, if you look back at the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus even said, today salvation has come to his house. And so the, the expectations of the crowd is erroneous, of course, And that's why Jesus has to tell this parable, because he needs to correct their view of the future and what they're supposed to be doing now. Now, you know, this has been a problem, not just in the time of Jesus' teaching in the Bible, but it's been a problem throughout all of church history, where there are people, there are Christians who come along, and they want to tell you that the kingdom of God is going to immediately appear. Well, even after his resurrection, his own apostles would ask if it was time. And he would tell them about the mission, the church's mission they're supposed to be doing. In Acts chapter 1, Luke also wrote this book. The very beginning, it says, and so when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know. Times or epochs, which the fathers fixed by his own authority, but And so here's what they're supposed to be focused on. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that still applies to the church. And it applies to us. That's supposed to be our focus, our mission. So that's why he tells this parable that we're going to look at now. And this parable tells us about Jesus' ascension, that is, after he was raised from the dead, He ascended into heavenly glory, and he received the kingdom in his coronation in heaven. He's been crowned king in heavenly glory, and we're waiting for him to come back. 
And so we read then in verses 12 to 14, So he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So this parable, as Jesus begins to tell us, is reminiscent of events that are actually very well known to the people at the time. You see, when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his son Archelaus traveled to Rome to appear before Caesar Augustus to be named king, a client king, in his father's place. Just as his father did before him in 40 BC before Mark Antony. But Herod Achaelus was responsible for massacring 3,000 Jews on a Passover, and so many Jews didn't like him. And so they also sent a delegation of 50 Jews and Samaritans. They traveled to Rome, and they spoke before Augustus to try to convince him not to give him the title and the authority. And so they prevailed to a certain degree because Achaelus was only named ethnarch over Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. In other words, he only got part of the kingdom. He didn't get the full kingdom. And so this is what is obviously in the minds of the people at the time. They know this story. They've heard this story before. But now Jesus is telling this familiar story and applying it to himself in something that's very different that is happening. And here a nobleman is going to go off to a far country to receive a kingdom and a title and rule over it. Well, Jesus, of course, is referring to himself. He is the most noble of noblemen because he's the Son of God. So after his crucifixion, he would ascend to heaven as the Redeemer King and begin to reign over creation anew. And he would return one day, will, to rule on this earth. So then this nobleman, back to the story line in, our, in Luke, calls ten of his servants together and gives them ten minas, most likely one to each of them. Now, a mina was a pretty small amount. Let's just say it's roughly three, three months' wages for an average person. So it's just, a, it's just a few thousand dollars to us. So he gives a few thousand dollars to people, to ten people, and he tells them to engage in business. It's a very small amount, and we wonder as we're reading this, Parable, why is it so small? And maybe it's because they weren't tested investors yet, and so this nobleman in the story is not going to give them a lot to work with. Maybe it's because a small amount forces creativity, and so we'll see what they come up with at the end. But perhaps the best idea is because it's going to put stress on the disproportionate reward that they receive at the end. And that's the whole point of the parable. Because as we see as we go along, they're going to receive a lot more than just a few thousand dollars. And certainly we see where Jesus is going with this because these servants in the storyline represent all of his disciples who've been given resources. It represents you and me who follow Jesus. It represents the spiritual gifts that he's given us, other gifts that he's given us. It represents the money that he's given us. It represents the opportunities that he puts before us. It represents our time. It represents so many things. And we as disciples are supposed to be doing business, if you will, for our king, who's going to be returning soon, so that when he comes back, 
we can show that we've made him a lot of glory in the meantime. Well, not everybody in the story liked this nobleman very much. In fact, many people, Jesus said, hated him. And he's clearly talking about the intense opposition that he's getting from the Jewish people at the time, especially the religious leaders. We've been reading all about them in the Gospel of Luke. And see, in this parable, they're really appealing to God, if you will, not to let him reign. Because they've already decided he's not the Messiah. They've rejected him. And in fact, as we're going to see, they're going to justify that as their rationale for killing him off on the cross, thinking and declaring that they were pleasing God by doing so. A sort of a preview that Jesus is giving in this story of what's going to happen. But back to the fact that Jesus has entrusted resources to his followers while he's away. Remember, I said that he has gone, you know, he's gone into this far country, meaning he went back to heavenly glory, and he was crowned king there. In fact, you can read about that coronation ceremony in Hebrews chapter 1. The whole chapter is a coronation ceremony that took place when Jesus ascended into heaven. He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high, it says in Hebrews 1 verse 3. In verse 8, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteousness of your scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. Thou, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness above your companions. And it closes in verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see, Jesus is reigning in heaven right now, and soon he's going to return to the earth. And in the meantime, we are to be faithfully serving him as our coming king. And so as this parable gets going then, if we're supposed to be anticipating his return and his reign, we have to know that he's going to reward faithfulness when he comes back. And so we get these, this parable continues in with two faithful servants in verses 15 to 19, and one unfaithful servant. Now yes, 10 people, 10 servants, got a mina or a few thousand dollars. We're only told about the reports of three of them. And so the first report of the two faithful servants is in verses 15 to 19. So when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, well, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Now, as he starts to give the report after he comes back, starting even right here in verse 15, he's going to make it very clear that even though the Jews somewhat were able to stop Herod Achaelus, a wicked man, from ruling over everything, they're not going to be able to stop Jesus Christ, who is the King of all, the Christ of God. He will rise, and he will ascend, and he will return in great power and glory, even after they thought they've done away from him, done away with him, and then he's going to personally call them to account. And so back to the parable. The nobleman, who's now the newly crowned king, calls for the ten servants to give an accounting, and we hear about three. It's enough to make the point. And so the first servant is faithful, amazingly so, he gets a 1,000% a, a return on the money. 
And he's commended saying that he's good and faithful. And he's given authority over ten cities in the kingdom under this new king. That's quite a reward for just investing a few thousand dollars. And then a second servant was also amazingly faithful. He earned a 500% return, likewise receives the commendation, and reward is authority over five cities. These servants felt the weight of their responsibility when the king was gone. They thought it was exciting to be able to take this money that was given to them by this king who's going to be coming back and invest it, do business. It was a thrill to make more fortune for their master. You see, true Christians have the same attitude and a heart's desire with all the resources that God has given them for God's glory, even right now. It's a thrill to gain him glory in the meantime. And notice the reward is highly disproportionate in the story. That's the whole point. It's the main point of the passage, really. Success in the responsibility of just investing a few thousand dollars results in this great authority over these large, prosperous cities in the kingdom. The reward, you see, is an over-reward. We're supposed to read the story and realize that's too much. They don't even deserve that much of a reward. And it shows the true character of this king. You see, disciples of Jesus Christ, like you, are going to be rewarded way beyond what you can even imagine. Disciples of Jesus Christ, like you and me, are going to long to hear the words, you're a good servant of mine. And so we should give serious consideration to this time period that we live in, testing our faithfulness for this coming king and and be positive and take our responsibility seriously. And at his return, we're going to receive glorious new duties and a holy delight in them for all of eternity. Then there comes this one unfaithful servant, though. Verse 20 to 23. Another came. Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So there was another, and notice the choice of words here, just another, an other servant. A servant of a different type, you see. And perhaps the other seven that we don't hear about, maybe they did okay. Maybe they didn't do quite as good as number one or number two. And maybe they did a little better than number ten, or this guy here at least, this one we're learning about. But he's called evil in the passage. He's called worthless in the passage. You see, this one took the mina, kept it hidden in the handkerchief, out of fear that when the nobleman returns as a king, that he can just give it back to him. And so, there's a lot of ways you can criticize this guy. I mean, there's a lot to say about him. He was way too conservative in his investment strategy. I mean, that's sort of a nice way to say that he's stupid and wicked, right? So you could also condemn him because, well, he didn't really know the character of his king because he didn't make him any money. He refused to do so as well. We could also criticize him because he simply refused to do what he was told. He was told, take this money and go do business. And he didn't do that. And we could also criticize him because he acts really, really dumb in this passage because even his own words condemn him. Well, I mean, if this is such a great king who's so powerful and so skilled, well, then why aren't you doing it out of fear, at least, to gain him some 
extra money. Well, maybe, perhaps it's even worse, is that he doesn't really want to work. He doesn't want to take any risks with this guy's money. In other words, he's really not interested in having this king be his king. This servant's a false disciple who showed no diligence, has no interest in advancing the glory of Christ. I mean, false Christians have the same attitude, same heart's desire when they're given God's resources. Instead of investing them and using them for to gaining Jesus Christ's glory, they spend it all on themselves to gain themselves glory. That's one way to know the difference. And so with this passage, what does it teach regarding profession, professing Christians who act similarly is that they're going to stand speechless when Christ returns. They're not going to have any excuse. And so to perhaps just like this wicked, evil servant in the passage, are going to have some pitiful excuse about why they didn't pursue Jesus' glory. And when called to account, these servants' words are somewhat puzzling when you read them in verse 20 and 21. You go back, he says, Lord, here's your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man, for you take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. So it's somewhat puzzling because we wonder, well, is he accusing the new king of stealing from his workers and exploiting other people for his own greedy profit? Is that what he's saying? Or is he complimenting this nobleman, this new king, just how shrewd and how powerful and how successful he is at business? Was he afraid of losing the mina and then being held accountable for having nothing? Or is he actually lying because he simply doesn't want to be involved with this king? He resents him. Well, regardless, he fears for good reason. And he should have at least invested the money in the bank, it says. You know, today people say similar types of things as a servant. People say things like, well, if God is like that, you know, I don't want to be involved with that kind of a God. Well, if he really is that way, to be feared and obeyed, it would be foolish not to. It'd be best to find out more about him and know the truth and serve him faithfully because you know there's a whole lot more to the story than just this half a page in your Bible. You see, because God is who he is, and Jesus Christ is who he is. So these banking, the banking metaphor, the farming metaphor that's given in, in verse 20 and 21 more likely refers to the king's remarkable skill in profit-making. And note the implication really here for God, maybe even using a bad example of a ruthless king and a greedy king. But it suggests that God is consumed with gaining glory for himself. And he's incredibly successful at it. He does it every single day. God does all things for his own glory. To gain as much of it as he desires. And however he wants to get it. But you know, in God's case, there's more to the story. Because he's deserving of it all. And he shares his glory and himself with his faithful followers and his subjects. Ultimately, that is our purpose. That is the reason we exist, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, the true Christian is going to be motivated by this and likewise be consumed with gaining glory for God. That's our passion. False Christians get put off for that, by that or are uninterested in it or unmoved by this. You see, the return of the one mina without increase is a fearful response 
of one who doesn't really even know who he's serving. And perhaps it's even a spiteful response to this man, a most serious failure. And so then in verses 22 and 23, the king makes it clear that he's going to judge the servant by his own words. The servant will, in other words, see how fearful he really should have been. And he's called worthless. Another translation would be evil slave. Well, since the servant doesn't really know the king, share his interests, or desire to serve him, well, so be it. And that's where the story will go in a minute. But we want to focus here on the fact that Lord Jesus is going to over-reward faithfulness. He's going to give us way more than we deserve as we serve him. And that final day when he comes back, it's going to be far more generous than you can imagine. And we don't have to worry about the small amount, it seems, that we have to use on God's purposes. I mean, that's a common complaint that we all give, isn't it? Is if I only had more to give. Or like, what difference can it make, this little bit of money? Or these small gifts that I have? Or I'm not as wonderful as person over here who is and how they benefit the church. But God determines, and he sets out the gifts and gives us exactly what he wants to give each one of us. And he's going to hold us accountable And we can look at this parable in a very good way because faithfulness, even in a little... Remember, these servants in the storyline, they only got a couple thousand dollars. But then they got ten cities and five cities to rule over with all the blessings that come from that in the kingdom. Even a small amount can bring great glory to Jesus and is going to be a great reward for you in the kingdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, it says, God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You have enough. You have all you need to be able to invest it for the glory of Jesus Christ. And you can anticipate a great reward that he's prepared for you. Well, third, if we're to stay faithful and hopeful to endure, to persevere, we also have to know that The Lord Jesus is going to judge everyone who's opposed to his rule. So we see in verses 24 and 26 that, yes, more generosity goes to the more faithful. And that there's, in verse 27, there's judgment on all types of enemies. So in verse 24, then he said to those who stood by, so remember where we are in this story. So these these guys just gave reports, two good reports, one not so good report. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, that wicked one, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So in the parable... The king instructs the bystanders, you sort of wonder in the storyline, maybe that's the other seven. Maybe that's what they have to do now. So they have to take this one mina that's left from this unfaithful servant and give it to the one who already has ten. And of course the objection is, well that's unfair since he already has ten. I mean, really he has eleven. And, you know, we might say the same thing, but, you know, think about it. I mean, if it were your money, you do exactly the same thing. You give it to the one who's likely going to produce the best results to you. Of course you would. That's what we do with our money every single day of our lives. We give it to the people that we think are going to make the most money out of it. We don't give it to people who don't. And so Jesus then 
repeats really a discipleship saying that we've heard from him before from Luke 8, 18. Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. So in our passage today, the application goes like this, is that those who work for the kingdom of God are going to get additional rewards because God's generosity just keeps going on and on and on. But those who do nothing for the kingdom of God are going to lose what even little they have or think they have because God is no fool. And then finally we get in verse 27 to the conclusion, but as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, remember we're going back to the very beginning of the story now, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So these enemies are those guys back in verse 14. So if you just look back to verse 14 and you read, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over. Well, in the parable, they're going to get exactly what they want because he's not going to be reigning over them very long because their breath's going to be cut off, be slaughtered in his presence. That's the most fitting demise for treason. It's a good picture of final judgment. But, of course, hell is even worse than that because it includes eternal torment, body and soul. But you see, the enemies of God and Christ in this passage, we can see, include two types. Yes, there's the openly rebellious of verse 14, but then there's also those misleading rebellious people like that servant who said he would obey, but he didn't. And Scripture warns repeatedly that the enemies of Jesus Christ come from both outside of the church and from inside of it. You see, apostasy is not as uncommon as we would hope it would be. Now, historically, as we look at this parable, as Jesus tells it, we know exactly what he's talking about, who he's talking about. We know all the players in the parable. It's pretty clear. And so historically, his enemies are those unbelieving Jews at the time of him, on the earth of our Christ, who would crucify him. But theologically, we also know who these enemies are in this passage, because they're everyone from all ages who do not want to submit to Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is going to judge everyone who's opposed to his rule because it's his kingdom and he will reign. Now we must not miss this warning because of course our desire is always to focus on things like the reward, which of course we should because that's the main point of the parable, but it's also true that he will judge. I mean Jesus himself said very early on in his ministry in John chapter 5, for not even the father judges anyone He's given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. For whoever doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then the promise comes right after that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So faithfully serve the Lord Jesus, your coming king, and be anticipating a generous reward in your life. So Jesus, you know, would be gone for a while, just like the parable starts. He's giving you a preview, giving all the readers a preview of what's going to happen. In fact, now we can look back and say, well, yeah, he's been gone quite a while. He's been gone like 2,000 years. But when he returns, he's going to evaluate faithfulness. And reward our faithfulness very generously. And he's going to say things like we hear in the parable in verse 17. 
Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, be in charge over ten cities. He's going to say things to us like, that's in verse 26. I tell you, to everyone who has, even you, more is going to be given to you. You see, Luke records these words of our Lord for our encouragement because he knows we need it. We need it to spur us on to greater faithfulness. We need a parable like this to keep us focused on what's really important, what our job is. And we need this kind of a parable to motivate us to hear the Lord's words of pleasure upon our life. You know, we have a responsibility during the interim period. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Jesus said he came preaching it. But then he went to heaven to be crowned king. And he's reigning in heaven, but we're waiting for him to come back. And so in this interim period, if you will, before he returns, we have work to do. Now, of course, on the larger scheme of things, it's pretty clear what the mission of the church is because he gave that mission at the end of Matthew 28. It's to go make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. That's the larger purpose of what we're supposed to be doing. But the focus in our parable is way more personal than that for each and every one of us to focus on what our resources are and how we can use them to serve the Lord with the very little that we even have. We can please God. And so the question from Jesus and from Luke is, what are you doing with the gifts and resources that God's given you to advance His glory? I mean, how do you feel about the responsibility? Do you own that responsibility? How do you feel about the opportunity? Does it make you excited? Did you get to use the things that God has given you to bring glory to Jesus? I hope so. Well, let me pray for us that it would be so. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your scripture, your word, by which you rule your church, and you guide us, and you teach us. And Lord Jesus, we know that you are our coming king, that you reign in heaven, you've received the kingdom, and we look forward to its fullness in our presence. And we pray this morning that this image, which sometimes can be so hard and difficult to be something for us to grasp in our minds and something that's so hard to really take over our hearts, that it would do so more so in our lives, that this reality would really affect us for service and it would continue to do so. And Lord Jesus, we know that you work through us as your people, as your church to gain glory for yourself before you return, that you have a very large mission for us to do in making disciples. We also pray that this whole understanding of our value to you as your church and that you redeemed us and that you've blessed us with your Holy Spirit and given us so many gifts and such a purpose that it would capture our hearts and motivate us as well too so that we would work untiringly and together as one to bring about more glory for you. May we continually pray about these types of things in our lives and not let this parable just simply fall today uh, after this service, but something that we meditate upon this week, each of us, and that by your Holy Spirit, we would actually step out in faith and see that indeed we can gain your glory by using the little that you've given to us to bring great honor to you. May we faithfully serve you, Lord Jesus, our coming King, and we do anticipate a great reward. And we pray these things for your glory. Amen.